In Latin America, we estimate countries can get 200 to 500,000 jobs for every $1 billion they spend in rural road maintenance projects initiated through microenterprises. Hello, and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Alex Bloomberg in New York. And I'm Hannah Jaffe-Walt in Seattle. Today is Friday, April 24th. That was World Bank President Robert Zellick, you heard at the top of the podcast there. Um, okay, so Hannah, we have a panoply of economic delights for our listeners on the podcast today. Uh, we are going to talk to a bank analyst about whether we should believe the recent bank earnings reports, which showed that the bank's made much larger than expected profits. And we were also talking to an expert on the so-called shadow banking system, about whether that system is dead and whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. And we're also going to hear from a listener about what the vending machine on the top floor of his office has to tell us about our economy. But first, let's have an indicator, shall we? It sounds like a good idea. Today's indicator, it is zero. That is the number of banks that will fail the government's stress test. <laughs> you know, Alex, <laughs> I went to a hippie elementary school and we didn't have tests, so I'm no expert or anything. But doesn't it kind of undermine the whole test thing if you tell everyone beforehand that they're all going to pass? Well, I took uh, a, a, you know far too many tests when I was a kid. Um, and um, yes, it does. Definitely. <laughs> I, I am here to tell you that if you know you're going to pass, you're not going to um, take it as seriously. But the government is in this weird situation here. Um, they're trying to test the health of our banks to determine if they need more bailout money. But they have to do that so carefully because if they release too much information about how the banks are actually doing, that could actually undermine the health of the very institutions that they're trying to help. Right, and that's the opposite of what they're trying to do. Exactly. Um, but if they don't tell us anything, after, so they announce, okay, we're doing these big tests, and then they don't say what the tests have shown, then everybody out there will be making up all these horror stories. And that's when we get into those fears of runs on banks, if we're all panicking about it. But it just kind of seems like this leaves us in this crazy halfway place where we're being like, eased into the news, whatever that news is, but it's really unclear what is being tested anyway. Right. And it's sort of unclear how seriously we should take all this. Like, I was just talking to my wife about this this morning, actually, and um, unfortunately for her, we talk about financial matters a lot. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I was saying, like, the, you know, there's this headline about the government today is going to release the methodology of how the stress tests are going to be conducted. And you hear everybody dismissing the, the stress tests as like sort of like just sort of a, a show. But then at the same time, the news comes out dutifully like there's another headline about the stress tests. And then on May 4th, the results are going to be released about the stress tests. And I just don't know, is it news or is it a foregone conclusion? It's, it's just hard to say. Right. And there seems like there's a lot at stake for something that's maybe not going to tell us very much. <laughs> right, exactly. Okay, and then there's this other thing, Alex, this other communications game being played with earnings reports, which is another thing that's kind of confusing to me. We keep hearing that, you know, all these big banks, it's quite likely that they're insolvent. And then, ta-da, they're reporting billion-dollar profits. Right. You know, for example, Bank of America, which was regarded as one of the sickest banks, reported a huge net income this last quarter, more than $4 billion. And this was after a multi-billion dollar loss just three months previously. 
But then, Hana, something even weirder happened. They announced those earnings. And then what the, happened? <laughs> the stock went down. Um, so clearly the stock market thought there was something fishy in the earnings report. Um, and so I've been digging around a little bit. on, uh, and, and, and in fact, in the details, there were some fishy things. For one thing, a lot of the gains that these banks were reporting had to do, came as a result of, quote, credit spreads widening. Now, this gets a little uh, technical, but it's also, it's pretty fascinating. Basically, credit spreads widening means simply that the banks are less healthy, um, that people think the banks are less healthy. When you're, when the credit spread widens against you, that means that um, basically people are, are assessing your likelihood of default to be higher. Um, and yet, somehow, when that happens, there's this accounting trick that you can do where you can book that as a gain in your accounting books. So it's literally like the, <laughs> it's literally like the institutions are regarded are widely perceived to be less healthy. Um, it costs more. Sorry, the, the widely perceived to be less healthy. People think Bank of America is in worse shape this week than they did last week, but it. Because of that, there's this sort of accounting gimmickry that can happen where Bank of America gets to book that as a gain. Which makes no sense in the normal human world. It's like right. completely upside down to me. Right. And then the opposite was true too. Morgan Stanley said it had to take a loss because it got healthier in the eyes of everybody who was looking at it. Um, <laughs> so um, I actually figured out, you know, I sort of was, this became a, sort of a, an obsession of mine this morning. And so I was checking around and I actually figured out how, how it works. And, and I could, we could demonstrate it right now if, if you want. Yeah, go for it. All right. So to do this demonstration, we're, we're going to leave the world of banking and Phew. just go into the, <laughs> exactly, and just go to the regular world of you and me and our friends. Uh, Caitlin Kennedy, for example, our producer. All right, so here's here's how I think it works. And again, this is I'm pretty sure this is the way it works, but I could be wrong. So if anybody out there is, has special knowledge about this, l- l- please let me know. Basically, you loan me a hundred dollars. All right. Okay. okay. I'll loan you a hundred dollars. Thanks, Hannah. All right, so now I have a hundred dollars, but then I lose my job. Okay. So. If I've lost my job, do you think I'm more likely to pay back your $100 or less likely? Right. Well, that sucks for me because I just lent you 100 bucks, and you're not going to probably be able to pay me back. Right. I'm less likely to pay back the $100. Clearly. Okay. So um, now let's say you wanted to get out of your position with me. <laughs> In other words, I owe you $100. You want to get out of that position. So you go to, say, our producer, Caitlin Kenny, and you say to her, hey, Caitlin, Alex owes me $100, but I will write you a little note saying – transferring that $100 to you when he pays it, will you give me $100 for that note? But Caitlin knows you lost your job too? Right. So she'll say, probably not $100, right? <laughs> she'll right. probably say... She's pretty smart, Caitlin. Yeah. So she'd probably say, sure, I'll give you some money, but I'm not going to give you the whole $100. So I'm going to give you $70, okay? So then, so that's basically the scenario, right? So you lent me $100, but in order to get out of that position with me, you would have to take a loss. She would give you $70. That means that you are out $30. Okay. Now, but for me, because now I know that that is, so I know that now people are only expecting me to pay back $70 and not $100, I get to book that as, <laughs> I get to count that as money that I've gained. 
basically, I owed you $100, but now because Caitlin only expects $70 from me, I get to book that as a $30 gain. So because we all think that you're a bad bet, you're not likely to pay us back, that's actually good for you. It's it's good for me in this one instance. Although it's a people say that it's a one-time thing and and that technically if my health improves, then I will have to take a loss. I will have to get rid of that gain. So in the future, if if I if I actually do get healthier and people think I'm healthier and I get a job back, then I'm going to have to rebook that I'm going to have to take that $30 back as a loss. But, you know. So so then does that mean that you know, the earnings, we shouldn't pay attention to them. They don't mean very much since this is only a one-time thing. Well, no, because there are other real things in these in these earnings reports that are actually a little bit more indicative of the overall health of the banks. For example, I talked to a financial analyst, Charles Peabody, who's at uh, Portalis Partners, and he said that the banks are making a lot of real money, actual money from mortgages. Now, this isn't to say that the housing market is picking up. In fact, the latest numbers came out today for new home sales, and it's the lowest number of new homes sold in March since the Census Bureau began tracking sales in 1963. But, Charles Peabody says, if you do want a mortgage, there just aren't that many places to go and get one. You've had so many mortgage banking companies go belly up that you've reduced the origination business to the big four, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, and Citigroup. And so you've created, in a sense, an oligopoly. I see. So even though mortgage activity overall has shrunk from its peaks in, in the you know, 2006, 2005, 2006, be, because there's so many, so many fewer banks who are even equipped to do it or who are alive to do it, they're the business is just picking up just because there's just so much so fewer players. Exactly. And, and, and to put some numbers to that, for example, um, Wells Fargo did about $100 billion of mortgage originations here in the first quarter. Um, that is equivalent to the peak levels of originations they were doing in 2006 or in 2003 when we had big refinancing booms. And yet the industry originations this calendar year should be significantly less than the industry originations that we saw in prior periods. So it says huge market share gains have been won by these four surviving mortgage originators. Now, Han, it's important to keep something in mind here. 75 to 80% of mortgage originations in this first quarter were due to refinancing, not home purchases. So these are not people... Not go- people going out. It's not people going out and buying homes. It's people saying... You know, I'm getting a good rate on refinancing my home. Right. I have a home and I just want to refinance. Right. Exactly. And there's a big question here. The only reason people are refinancing right now is because 30-year mortgage rates are so low. And the only reason 30-year mortgage rates are so low is because the Federal Reserve is taking these unprecedented, huge, dramatic actions to lower them. It's planning to spend nearly a trillion dollars buying 10-year treasuries and mortgage-backed securities on the open market. And these bold new steps for the Fed are all designed to lower mortgage rates for you and me and everybody in America. And it's working. People are now able to refinance and banks are able to earn money when people do refinance. But the question is, can it last? What happens to bank profits when the government eventually eases back on these massive interventions, as they must do eventually? Um, Here's what Charles Peabody thinks. I think those profits will prove to be sustainable, but we really won't know until we get into June, July. Um, the, the two drivers right now, as I mentioned, are the trading businesses in, the, in what we call capital markets and then the mortgage origination in the mortgage banking business. 
and those probably will continue to drive second quarter earnings. But each one of those businesses will die a natural death but give rise to ancillary revenues that derive off of those businesses. In other words, he's saying basically that those two areas of their business will help other areas get get profitable soon. But it, it's interesting, sort of like if you take a big picture look at this, Hannah, it's like the government is basically trying to make it as easy as possible for banks to make money. It's lending them money at ridiculously low rates, and it's driving business toward them by lowering mortgage rates. Um, right. It's like doing everything that it can to make us refinance our homes. Right. So A, it's to help us with our underwater houses, but also B, to help the banks because it seems like the strategy on the government's part is if if we can just get the banks earning enough, they can eventually earn their way out of this hole that they've dug for themselves, and then the government won't have to come in and do something scary like take them over or nationalize them. So Peabody's kind of saying that this has been successful. It seems like he's saying, yeah, and he was very bearish on the banking industry before. Like, he was one of the people who was sort of out ahead saying that we have a housing bubble. And so he's not um, some good time, you know, Charlie out there just saying, like, <laughs> that everything's fine. He's, but he actually says, you know, that the banks basically, that the, the, the debate has shifted. It's no longer about insolvency. It's more about, like, just how profitable can they be. But he thinks, it seems like he's saying, like, um, we're past that, that point where we're going to talk about nationalizing one of these big banks. All right, Alex, let's keep moving on this banking train because I want to talk about the shadow banking market. I have heard that it is dead. Right. Enough about the banking market. Let's talk about the shadow banking market. I've heard it's dead too. Yeah, I know. Everyone's talking about it, right? You know, go to the bar. It's all about shadow banking. (laughs) I just like saying shadow banking. It sounds very dramatic. Um, And we're actually going to try to explain what it is right now and talk a little bit about whether or not it should stay dead. Right. The shadow banking market, you hear a lot of people say, talking about it, and it sounds very shifty and sneaky. um, But really, it's just, it's basically, it's pension funds. (laughs) You know, institutional investors, money market funds, uh, insurance companies, those kind of folks. Yeah. Now it sounds a lot more boring. Right. <laughs> That's why we call it the shadow banking market to make it <laughs> seem exciting. Um, but it, 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 and it plays and has played a huge, huge role in our economy and in the crisis that we have now. Um, basically, it is slash was a way to connect people with billions of dollars with people who need to borrow billions of dollars, <laughs> uh, like homeowners, all of us who need to borrow money to buy a house um, or buy a car or people who use their credit cards. Right. But now here's where it starts to sound a little scary again, because the way that that happened was through things like mortgage-backed securities, which we used to all call kosher, but now we call them toxic. So just a refresher, a mortgage-backed security, you take a couple thousand mortgages, you put them all in a big pool, and then you, and then in, investors can buy pieces of that pool. And these investors are basically in the shadow banking system. Um, they can buy high-risk parts of the pool, or they can buy low-risk parts of the pool. Um, but the whole process is called securitization. Right. And this is this is what Fannie and Freddie Mac do, but that's not the shadow banking part. The shadow banking system refers to things like mortgage-backed securities that are put together by other folks, investment banks. Right. So it, it, so the question is, was it, was it, was it good and bad? And, and, and on the good side, it definitely made a lot of 
money available to people who wanted to buy homes, and it brought down interest rates that they would have to pay on those homes. But the shadow banking industry wasn't as good as the regular banking industry at determining who should get the money. (laughs) So uh, it lent a lot of money to the people who did not have good credit or good jobs or even any jobs. (laughs) Right. So this shadow banking system is now rumored to be dead. And Planet Money's David Kestenbaum, he talked to Joe Nadillo. He's the managing editor of Asset Backed Alert, which tracks the numbers um, and and when Nadillo says private label, he means the shadow banking system, mortgage-backed securities that weren't put together by Fannie and Freddie. At the height of the market, the private label market, I guess around you know 2006. I mean, we saw as much as 570 billion dollars in mortgage-backed security, private label mortgage-backed securities, sell through the market. Right. So that's 500 billion dollars worth of of residential mortgages, right? Yes. $570 billion worth of mortgage-backed securities, which are backed by residential mortgages. And then this year so far, I looked at your data, it looks like we have just $3.2 billion this year so far. Exactly. So it's really just fallen off a cliff. What happened basically is that when homeowners and borrowers started to fail on their mortgages, it made these securities weaker and weaker. And then, you know, everything just froze. Nobody wanted to buy them anymore. And the bank stopped lending. So there was nothing to kind of, you know, use to to back the bonds. So that's why we've seen the kind of, I like to call it a colossal collapse in uh, the private label mortgage-backed securities market. How did we deal? Because when I look at that chart uh, from your website, you know, back in, I don't actually have it here in front of me, but, you know, we didn't used to have this uh, shadow market of creating private mortgage-backed securities, and we seemed to live okay back then. Well, it's true. I mean, it didn't, wasn't really originated until, you know, I guess uh, the mid-1990s. But what it did, it was it, I guess it fueled a market that allowed more people to own homes. I mean, the way things worked before is, uh, you know, you got a a mortgage through Fannie or Freddie and, um, you know, you paid your loan and that's the way it was. And these things weren't used to back bigger bonds. By allowing those things to be used as collateral for big bonds, it created a market where banks could continue to lend because as they lended, they used the loans to kind of securitize the mortgages, the mortgage-backed securities, and then they could lend more. These um, these private mortgage-backed securities, do you have a sense for what fraction of them were based on, you know, real subprime sort of junk and what fraction of them were act- were based on stuff that were given under more strict lending standards? According to our database, I mean, at least, you know, I don't know, 35, maybe 40 percent of this market was fueled by the subprime market during the, the boom years, I would say between 2005 and 2007. Uh, 2004, 2007, the subprime market was a major contributor to the private label MBS market. Why do you think the market, the private mortgage-backed security market has stopped? Is it because uh, nobody wants to buy the stuff? So if I'm a bank and I want to buy up a bunch of mortgages and you know structure it and try and sell off the pieces, right. uh, there's nobody interested in buying it? Or is it because I can't really buy the pieces? There aren't, there aren't that many mortgages out there. Or what is it? the underlying started taking such a beating, nobody wanted to buy the stuff anymore. So you didn't have the pension plans coming in and buying up mortgage backs anymore. Once that foundation began to crack, the market for the bonds just dried up. So the only bonds changing hands right now are on the secondary market, and it's mostly toxic, distressed debt that people are trying to pick up to gain a huge yield. So, so if I were to go buy, you know, uh, however many thousand mortgages, and they were all to prime borrowers, and I were to do what people used to do for years, which is I put them in a pool, um, you know, and I let people 
basically buy up you know parts of the pool. Some can be first in line to get paid if they're worried about getting paid. I could not do that today. No one would. No one would buy. There would be no one willing to buy the different pieces, the tranches. Right. There would be, be very few takers at this point. Any mortgage-backed securities that are being bought on the primary market are basically being funneled through um, federal programs um, and government programs in Europe and things like that. But as far as actual investors go, there isn't much of a market buying the stuff right now. And nobody's really creating it either because you have to remember that in order to make a mortgage-backed security, you have to pay underwriters and things like that. And the cost of actually packaging a deal has grown um, astronomically since the market has dried up and it costs that much more to kind of fund such issues. So even though people believe securitization is a good idea, even though we can go make uh, loans to people who have solid jobs, who put 20% down, who have excellent credit ratings, I still couldn't sell one of these things today. It would be, if I were a bank, it would be risky for me to try and buy, the, buy all these things, package them and, and sell them as a mortgage-backed security. Yes, it would be difficult, as you can see by the numbers that we had for the first quarter. Yeah, so three point two billion so far this year in mortgage-backed securities. Is it a big deal when you actually see one of those go through? Now it used to be we had you know oh, five hundred yeah. I mean, million uh, year. years ago. I mean, two thousand and five, you'd see um, you know thirty deals, maybe fifty deals a week go through. Um, maybe um, thirty billion dollars in mortgage-backed securities offerings in you know one or two weeks. We haven't seen a U.S. mortgage-backed security deal go through in a while. So when you do see one, it is like, hey, here we go. It used to be. Uh, you know, an everyday occurrence. Now it's uh, it is big news. And, and to the extent that this is not happening, right? It used to be five hundred billion a year. Right. That is less money available for people who want to borrow money to buy a house, right? Unless that money is now somehow all available through Fannie and Freddie or something. But I mean, it seems like that is money that was available for people who wanted to borrow to buy a house that is not there now. Exactly. You're exactly right, David. It's a whole kind of cyclical thing. Um, you know, and as a result. You know, we're seeing a glut of houses on the housing market that won't sell. You know, that's part of the problem. I guess the big question I wanted to ask you, which I think we've answered in pieces, is, uh, is securitization dead? No, not at all. Securitization is uh, the heart of uh, America's uh, lending activity and, and the heart of its economy. If, if we didn't have it, it'd be that much more difficult to, for people to um, buy cars and, uh, you know, have uh, credit cards and even get student loans. It runs to the very fabric of us being able to kind of um, lend and borrow and uh, keep things going. So it is not dead, and uh, I think in time uh, we're going to see volume uh, pick back up. Okay, that was David talking to Joe Nadillo. He's the managing editor of Asset Backed Alert. And, you know, as he said there, it's, we're not just talking about mortgages. It's also credit card debt, student loans, car loans. They also all got securitized and sold off. Um, so that market is dead right now, too. And some of the Fed programs, they're aimed at actually really trying to get that moving again. Yeah. And, and Hunter, it was interesting. They got to sort of an interesting uh, debate there at the, at the end of that interview. And you hear a lot of people saying sort of like, well, the way it used to be worked fine. Like without securitization, banks would lend and they would check their borrowers well. Um, and then Joe Danilo is saying, no, 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 securitization does a lot more good than harm because um, you know it makes money available and it gives it and it makes credit available to people who didn't normally have access to it and and we're going to come back to that debate on a future podcast which whether the shadow banking system does more harm than good um, and uh, I think it'll be interesting to sort of look into that okay great and last but not least we've been loving getting those personal economic indicators that you all have been sending us on the blog and email planetmoney at npr.org. 
Um, and today we're going to bring you one that I think you all can relate to. It's a financial problem many, many of you have faced. You're at the Coke machine, and it won't take your stupid dollar bills. So I'd go upstairs with my dollar bill and try to stick it in the machine. And sometimes it would go, you know, roll in and out. This is Rick <laughs> Alfaro from uh, IBM. He works at IBM in Sacramento, and he wrote us to report this pressing issue. You know, he was getting really annoyed. It's 2, 3 in the afternoon, and the vending machine's on the second floor. He goes upstairs. He's tired. He wants his caffeine. And he keeps having to hear. You know, roll in and out. And I would trade them out with people and, flat, you know, rub them on the edge of a desk and, you know, smooth out every little crease and crack and have new ones. And no matter what I did, it wouldn't take that bill. So one day, Rick actually sees the canteen guy refilling the machine, this big guy, and he asks him, what's the deal? The machine, it doesn't take dollar bills. And the canteen guy says, yeah, that's because it's full. When the bin fills up with bills, it can't take anymore. Aha. So Rick starts using change, and it's working great for months. He's getting his sodas until just a few weeks ago. Basically, what started happening was the opposite. I'd put in change, and it would just drop all the way through to the bottom. And I thought, God, you know, this change, now the change thing isn't working right. So it just got really frustrating. It was just sort of like the whole thing in reverse. So then Rick sees the vending delivery guy again. I said, oh, I guess a lot more people are digging for change now. And he goes, oh, yeah, I guess so, you know. I, and I asked him, are, are more people, is there more change in your machines than usual? And he's like, yeah, I think so. People are, you know, using less bills and more change. So they, you know kind of scrimping a little bit and digging in their car. And, and it's like if you put if you dig into your wallet, you're thinking a little more about, about it as real money, whereas, you know, if you just kind of scrape together some, some change out of your ashtray and the bottom of your backpack or your purse or something, it seems like less like money, I guess. It's an interesting theory. Yeah, well, it's actually a theory that people study. I, I told this story to Priya Ragubir, and she just like went crazy about it. She's a marketing professor at NYU Stern School of Business. And she just published a paper exactly about this thing that Rick is noticing in his vending machine. It's called the denomination effect. We have found that people are less likely to spend a large denomination as compared to a small denomination. So four quarters is less valuable to me than a dollar? Absolutely. And in fact, we've done some studies with four quarters and a dollar, and we found that people were much less likely to spend the one dollar note they were given as compared to the four quarters that they were given. In all the uh, experiments that we did, we found uh, that was true as we increased the amount of money which we gave individuals. We gave in, in one experiment up to a week's salary to housewives in China and found that they were much more likely to spend when uh, the same amount of money was given in a bunch of small notes as opposed to a single large note. And you also did this experiment at a gas station, right? We did. We did an experiment in uh, Omaha gas station where we had people fill in a fake survey about their gas usage so we could thank them with $5. And the $5 they were given were either as a single $5 bill five $1 bills or five $1 coins. Those who went into the gas station were then intercepted as they came out, and we asked them for uh, a copy of their uh, bill. And the people who were given coins, they just blew it all on soda and Laffy Taffies or something? I haven't actually analyzed what they bought, but we found that the likelihood of purchase of a non-gas-related expense was higher in the dollar one note 
and coin condition as compared to the $5 note condition. The people with the $5 notes, they hung on to their money more often. Exactly. That ties in with some research done by Scott Trick and his colleagues at Carnegie Mellon, uh, where they found that tight wads have this big fear of uh, spending money. Did, did, you just say, did you just say tight wads? Tight wads. Is that a, is that a scientific term? That is a, the new scientific term. Okay, so, uh, so tight wads a, means somebody doesn't like to spend money. Exactly. And these tight wads, uh, they've identified a way to measure them in terms of a scale. And they have a real pain associated with paying, which another group of individuals called the spent thrifts do not. And these people are quite happy to, to spend money uh, without any pain associated with them. Pain? Like, is that just mean, I don't like uh, it the has idea. Been, uh, I think uh, there is evidence showing that it's a real physical pain. People who do not like spending money actually have a visceral response to spending money. So for those people, the denomination effect is just more pronounced. Exactly. I guess what's interesting to me about this is that we're at a, we're at a point where a lot of industries are really being impacted by people pulling back on spending. So if I'm you know, President Obama right now, what am I going to get from your research? I really want people to spend okay. money. If I were President Obama, uh, the very first thing I would uh, recommend is increase the circulation of $1 coins and consider introducing $2 coins. Certainly be using different forms of money. So if, for example, I were to issue a tax rebate check, one way in which I could issue the tax rebate check would be in the form of traveler's check, uh, which did not need to be deposited in the bank, but could be spent in a retail store, for example, very much like the old American Express traveler's checks used to be spent. So the minute it goes into the bank account, it becomes saving, it becomes real money. But otherwise, if I'm getting it more like petty cash in my uh, mail, and I can go into Macy's and spend it, or I can go into Safeway and spend it, then I would be more likely to spend my stimulus uh, money rather than save it, which is one of the goals, I think, of the stimulus package. And that we would get those traveler's checks in small denominations. Right, in 20s, the way we get cash. <laughs> wow. I am, I am, I so wish I was a, uh, a tightwad. But I am You're not so, a tightwad? No, I'm a spendthrift, You're unfortunately. Spendthrift. I have no pain associated with spending money whatsoever. <laughs> but you know, yeah, It's I really s- hard to look, listen to her and not try to picture the people in your life and which one they are. Which one are you? I, I feel like I'm probably a tightwad. Right. I, I'm not a serious tightwad, but, but I got the tightwadism. Yeah, mm-hmm. my, my sister is. So I don't think it's like a, I think it can go both ways in families because my sister is absolutely a tight one. There's a pain she feels with spending money and, she, <laughs> and, a, and, a, and, a, and a positive association she has with saving money, I think, whereas I, I, I feel no positive association with saving, unfortunately. I'm sorry, Alex. That's all right. <laughs> okay. I think that's it for us for today. Um, next week, David Fulkenflick, NPR's media correspondent. We've been having a really great time hanging out with David this week, and he's been telling us all about uh, the economics of small papers and news on the web. So we're going to pull them into a studio for you so you can hear that conversation too. That's coming up on Monday. In the meantime, we are at npr.org slash money. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Hannah Jaffe-Walt. Thanks for listening. <laughs>